The Ask Anatomist podcast is co-sponsored by the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University and by the American Association for Anatomy. Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious. Today's episode, what did the sperm say to the egg? I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, an associate professor in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. Our episode will be talking and focusing on infertility. Recent claims suggest that common household items such as beauty and cleaning products could be impacting on our ability to conceive. But before we get into the complications that can occur with conception, we need to understand the anatomy and biology of fertility. In order to discuss this, we have a fantastic interdisciplinary team here today. Would you take a moment to introduce yourselves? Thanks, Michelle. I'm John Carroll. My research is all about understanding how eggs develop and how they can make the transition into a healthy embryo. Hi, my name is Georgina Stevens. I'm a medical practitioner who works primarily in education. G'day there. My name is Chris, and I'm an interested community member. Before we talk about fertility or infertility, I've heard the term gametes thrown around with regards to fertility. Is this something related to sperm and eggs? It is indeed. So all gametes really start out in the developing embryo as germ cells. And these are actually completely indifferent when it comes to what sex they will become. However, if the germ cells contain a Y chromosome, and more specifically, a gene called SRY, which is abbreviated for sex-determining region on the Y chromosome, then at about seven weeks of gestation, it will initiate a cascade of events that lead to the differentiation of those germ cells down a pathway that will result in them forming male germ cells and ultimately spermatozoa, or sperm. So if it wasn't for the presence of SRY, we would all actually become females. If there is no SRY we end up with ovaries containing millions of primordial follicles, each of which contain a small egg. These primordial follicles are the sole source of eggs available to the woman for her entire reproductive lifespan. Although there is some controversy on this point, interestingly, ovarian activity does not wait till puberty, but primordial follicles are growing even during fetal life. However, they are never ovulated what that means is being released from the ovary and instead undergo a degeneration pathway known as atresia. On the male side, we have a completely different scenario where the testes are formed and get ready to start producing millions of sperm. But the process of spermatogenesis only begins at puberty when the pituitary gland, which is a small gland, produces hormones and extends from the base of the brain, starts releasing luteinizing hormone to trigger testosterone production in the testes. So a hormone that starts in your head near the brain has to make it all the way to the testes? That's exactly right. You wouldn't believe how important it is for the communication between the brain 
and the gonads are for proper reproduction. But then, how do these gametes actually meet in order for fertilization to take place? As we heard, male gametes are sperm, but they can't survive in body temperature, so they're made and stored in the testes outside the body. To enter the female reproductive tract, which is where fertilization will take place, they travel from the testes into the body via a long tube called the vas deferens, or also known as the ductus deferens. This is their transit internally. This tube is what's cut or disconnected in a vasectomy, so you're cutting the vas deferens. If a man hasn't had a vasectomy and the sperm continue to travel, the sperm will move into the pelvis where additional fluids are added to generate the semen. These fluids come from the seminal vesicles, which are paired structures, and also from the prostate. The semen then travels from the prostate through the urethra. The urethra is the second tube in this pathway that connects the bladder, where urine is stored, and the prostate to the outside world. So the urethra is a unique location where the reproductive and urinary tracts converge or connect. In females, unlike the male, the gametes are matured internally or inside the ovaries. Each month, an egg undergoes maturation, and every around 28 days, the egg is released into the peritoneal or abdominal cavity. Once in the abdominal cavity, the fembrae, which are like sea anemone with finger-like structures, help sweep the egg into the uterine or fallopian tubes. The egg then travels down the uterine tubes. If there are viable sperm present, the sperm will penetrate the egg, completing its maturation, hopefully in the widest part of the uterine tubes, also known as the infundibulum. In both cases, with or without sperm present, the egg progressively travels down the uterine tubes into the uterus. If fertilization has occurred, the fertilized egg, now known as a zygote, will undergo several cellular divisions to become a blastocyst. This blastocyst then embeds within the uterine wall, which is already prepared with a rich blood supply to help the developing fetus grow and mature. If the egg, however, is unfertilized, it will pass through the neck of the uterus, also known as the cervix, and then through the vaginal space to the outside along with the unneeded extra layers of the uterine wall. This process of shedding the lining of the uterus when no fertilization of the egg occurs or if the fertilized egg fails to implant into the uterine wall, is known as menstruation, or having a period. The standard cycle is 28 days, but what are the key sort of milestones within there that we're looking for with regards to fertilization? That's a great question, because that's really at the hub of knowing when the most fertile period of the reproductive cycle is. Day one of the cycle is defined really as the first day of menstruation, and ovulation happens normally around about day 14 induced by a surge of hormones coming from the pituitary gland called luteinizing hormone. And that surge of hormone causes the maturation and release of the egg into the fallopian tube that we've just heard about. So fertilization happens just after ovulation, within hours of ovulation normally. If the egg is fertilized, it then proceeds down the reproductive tract, as we've just heard about, and will implant about five days after fertilization. And that period of implantation sends a signal to the mother to either maintain the lining of the uterus and therefore maintain the pregnancy. But if fertilization doesn't take place, then the signal from the embryo doesn't reach the mother 
and menstruation will start to take place about a week later. Fertilization occurs often before the mother even knows she's pregnant because she hasn't yet missed her period by the time fertilization takes place. So back in the previous season, in episode 8, we discussed how each cell has 46 chromosomes in them. In this instance, we're talking about bringing two cells together, but if each cell has 46 chromosomes, that's a lot more chromosomes, no? Exactly. And germ cells undergo a really clever process called meiosis, which reduces the number of chromosomes in each of the germ cells, so that when they do come together, each of them only have 23 chromosomes, creating an embryo that has 46 chromosomes. So this process of meiosis is absolutely fundamental to successful reproduction. Interestingly, when egg cells undergo meiosis, what they do is end up undergoing two successive cell divisions that result in two very small products of meiosis, or two very small cells and one very big cell. So from meiosis, you only get one egg from each germ cell. Whereas in the male, it's a very different story. You have one male germ cell that divides twice, ending up with four germ cells out of each precursor cell. Following meiosis, female gametes only produce one final germ cell with 23 chromosomes, whereas the male meiosis results in four final germ cells, all with 23 chromosomes. So both gametes, male and female, undergo two cellular divisions during meiosis to generate gametes that each have 23 chromosomes. In female gametes, we end up with only one final large egg to support development, whereas in the male gamete development, we end up with four viable sperm with 23 chromosomes each. So this isn't the sperm or the egg which is dividing after it's already been created. This is before these gametes are actually created. This is during gamete production, yeah. So this is actually happening during the production of the gametes in the testis and in the ovary. Although an interesting factoid is that the second meiotic division in eggs doesn't actually take place until after fertilization. And it's this process of fertilization that stimulates the completion of the meiotic cell divisions in the egg and allow it to make a transition into the mitotic cell divisions of the early embryo until it reaches the blastocyst stage. So in essence, meiosis leads to changes in chromosome number. Mitosis leads to increase in cellular number. That's a good way of putting it. But another really important and critical factor about meiosis is that it's really the stage where we get the crossing over of the chromosomes from the mum and the dad. At its essence, fertilization appears to be a maths problem, and essentially we need to engage meiosis to divide the number of chromosomes from 46 to 23. Following meiosis, a complex pathway and series of events leads to fertilization. So now I think is a good time to begin discussing impacts on fertility and potential causes of infertility. Now that we understand what happens in our bodies to allow us the capacity to reproduce, let's talk about the birds and the bees. How do we define fertility and how do we define infertility? So infertility is defined as the inability of a couple to conceive after 12 months of regular sexual intercourse without contraception. This makes it quite different to most medical conditions, because in this case, we have two individuals involved. 
Hence, infertility might be caused by factors in the male, factors in the female, or indeed factors in both individuals. Infertility might also be described as being primary infertility or secondary infertility. Primary infertility refers to the scenario where a woman has never had a pregnancy resulting in a live birth, whereas secondary infertility refers to the scenario where a woman is unable to get pregnant after previously successfully having a baby. Another term that might be useful to define here is fecundability. This refers to the monthly ability to get pregnant. So even in couples of normal fertility, the monthly fecundability is around 20%. Another way of looking at this is saying that about 80 to 90% of couples with apparently normal fertility will conceive within 12 months of trying. It is quite difficult to get pregnant. In fact, sperm only live for up to 72 hours, and eggs survive for only up to about 24 to 48 hours following ovulation. This means there's a very limited time for overlap of the viable sperm meeting the viable egg. That's a really interesting point, and there's a good evolutionary reason for this, in that if the egg is old and gets fertilized many, many hours after ovulation, then it could be abnormal, unhealthy, and lead to an unhealthy embryo that could lead to problems later on. So it makes good sense to only have fresh, viable gametes being able to undergo the fertilization process. That ties back to meiosis we were discussing before, because essentially, until the sperm meets the egg, that second meiotic division doesn't happen. And so therefore, the older the egg is, the less likely the meiosis will complete accurately. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we know from work in the lab that the older the egg is after ovulation, the more unhealthy it is and the more likely it is to create an abnormal embryo. Does that mean a healthy egg is more important than a healthy sperm for fertilization? The limitation to the sperm's long-term viability is really its capacity to keep swimming and have the ability to survive in the female reproductive tract and actually to penetrate through the outside parts of the egg and actually fuse with the egg to create that embryo. So the sperm probably doesn't have the same issues with regard to chromosomes, but it has issues to do with its ability to fertilize the egg. Some couples trying to get pregnant will attempt to maximize this overlap of having a healthy sperm and a healthy egg by testing to see if ovulation has occurred and timing intercourse around this. The test utilizes the hormones that we have been discussing, specifically LH or luteinizing hormone, which signals release of an egg from an ovary. This hormone travels through the bloodstream, so you could do a blood test to look for it, but also travels into the urinary system, where it can be detected in urine and in the test completed at home. So once fertilization has occurred, if something goes wrong in the very early stages of pregnancy, the embryo will not be viable, or that is, compatible with life. Therefore, a woman may miscarry in these very early stages of pregnancy even before she realises that she is pregnant. The miscarriage may then just appear to be a normal period. There is a lot of talk in the media about how infertility is becoming increasingly common. Why is that? The statistics are a little bit unclear, and it probably differs between developing versus developed world countries. But yes, it does seem that infertility is increasing, and there are quite a few reasons why this might be occurring. 
Compared to decades past, women are now having children later, and we know that fertility drops with age, as well as the incidence of birth defects increasing. There are many reasons why women are perhaps having children later, including changes in gender equality, wanting financial security, career reasons, inability to find a partner, the advent of more effective contraception, and overall financial, social, and environmental uncertainty. So all of these reasons do mean that there are implications on fertility. Overall, it seems in Australia that about one in six couples are affected by infertility. One in six couples being affected by infertility is a huge number of people when you think about it. And the source of that infertility can come from many different reasons, as we've heard already, from the male partner, the female partner, or a combination of the two. And we've also heard that aging is a really, maternal aging at least, is a very important aspect to the fertility in women. And it's really interesting that just about all of this aging-related subfertility or infertility is related to changes that take place in the egg, which is sitting around in the ovary as the woman ages. And we know this because in IVF programs, the success rate of young women under the age of 33 is about 40%. But by the time a woman is about 40, the success rate is less than 10%. However, if that 40-year-old woman has eggs donated from a younger patient, her success rate goes back up to be the same as that of a younger patient, about 40%. So just about all of the infertility that takes place due to maternal aging or due to being an older mum is related to problems taking place in the egg while it's in the ovary. And that goes back to what we discussed in the first part of the podcast, which is that the female is born with all of the gametes that they'll have and they stay arrested in that stage throughout life, whereas the sperm are constantly being made new and fresh. I read recently that the quality of the sperm, at least within the US in this study, was decreasing and was on a downward trend. How much of a factor is that in all this as well? It could be a really important factor. And it's not clear whether it's the quality of the sperm. It could also be the fact that sperm counts seem to be decreasing consistently, whether you're in the US or whether in Northern Europe, wherever the studies happen these days, there is a strong tendency for sperm counts to have decreased since they first started being counted back in the 50s and 60s. So for some reason, men seem to be producing fewer sperm than they were in the last generation. The reasons for this aren't clear, but one of the strongest factors thought to be responsible for this is a lot more of the environmental factors that are impacting on the very sensitive process of sperm production. Beyond problems with the egg or the sperm, there are lots of other causes of infertility that we need to consider as well. We've discussed a few of the different parts of the reproductive system and also glands such as the pituitary gland that we need to produce normal gametes and have a healthy reproductive system. So sometimes problems with these parts of the body can also cause infertility. For example, in the woman, tubal disorders, that is problems with the uterine tubes, account for about a fifth of causes of infertility. So, for example, if there's scarring within the uterine tube, the egg won't be able to pass down into the uterus and develop into a pregnancy. Another condition that you might have heard of is endometriosis, or the abnormal growth of endometrial tissue, that is, the lining of the uterus, outside the uterine cavity, and that can also cause infertility. 
Related to the glands in the body, such as the pituitary gland, if some of those hormone signals aren't getting down to the ovary of the testis, they can also result in infertility. Importantly, I should also mention that around 17% of the time, we don't find out why a couple can't have a baby. It just highlights how complex fertility really is when we have two people involved and lots of different things that could interplay to go wrong. Is there a way someone would know if they are infertile or not prior to trying to become pregnant? Usually not. In some cases, people might be aware of medical conditions past or present that have impacted their fertility. However, sometimes the infertility is indeed the first sign that something is clinically wrong. There is no one single test that can determine infertility because of the many underlying causes that we have discussed. Evaluation of infertility follows the same approach we have discussed in previous podcasts with history, examination, and then appropriate use of investigations or tests based on what has been found in the history and examination. However, this time it involves the evaluation of both partners. History taking might include asking about medical conditions, contraceptive use, and the menstrual history in the female, that is, asking about her period, how frequently it occurs, how long it lasts for, any abnormal bleeding patterns, that sort of thing. It's also important to ask about any previously sexually transmitted diseases, as these can impact on infertility. One example of this would be chlamydia, which can sometimes relate to problems with scarring in the uterine tubes. Examination might suggest or reveal some causes of infertility, but most often investigations are required. Investigations are going to be different for males and females and generally progress from more simple tests to more specialised ones. In the male, the first test that is usually performed is semen analysis. This is where a sample of semen is analysed under a microscope to determine how many sperm are present and their motility, that is, if they look like they're swimming or moving about properly. Tests in women might involve blood tests to assess hormone levels that indicate ovulation is occurring, and if this indicates ovulation isn't happening, other hormone levels might be tested to figure out whether the problem is with the ovaries or one of the other glands such as the pituitary that we've mentioned. A more specialised test that is frequently used is something known as a hysterosalpingogram. That is a special type of x-ray where a solution that shows up on x-ray known as contrast is injected through the cervix, the neck of the uterus, into the uterus itself. The x-ray will then show the outline of the uterus and the uterine tubes, demonstrating any blockages or abnormalities in the shape. This contrast medium then will be exposed into the abdominal or peritoneal cavity because in healthy uterine tubes, the uterine tubes are open to the space. Interestingly, if you do get a histosalpingogram taken, they often will tell you that you'll end up potentially with right shoulder pain. And this is because as the contrast medium is released, it will irritate the diaphragm on the right side. And because the innervation of the diaphragm came from the neck originally during embryology and hashtag embryology matters, this pain will refer back to its origin or the right shoulder. So depending on what the results of these tests show, sometimes more specialised tests can be used, but sometimes we get to the end of the testing process and we still don't find an answer. 
Does family history play a part at all? So if one's mother or father had any issues with fertility? So that's a good question. The genetics is going to be obviously very complex in most infertility. One procedure for treating infertility, which has the potential to propagate infertility from one generation, and particularly from the father, to the sons, is due to the process of intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which is a revolutionary way that really transformed the ability to treat male infertility. This is where you take an individual sperm into a tiny micropipette and inject it directly into the egg to trigger fertilization. But of course, all of those sperm are coming from dads who would not normally be able to generate healthy sperm. So in some cases, not all, but in some cases, the reason for that infertility is due to a genetic reason, which will then be potentially propagated with the next generation. And the same comes into play with endometriosis. So often IVF is used to overcome endometriosis. And endometriosis in a very small percentage can be inherited from mother to daughter. And so again, in that case, if the parents go on to have a female, there is a potential to pass on that endometriosis, which leads to infertility. So whilst we have some great new technologies to help overcome infertility, we're perhaps creating some problems for future generations who will have to go down the same path. What I'm taking away from this conversation is that while Henry VIII definitely got mad at his very many wives for infertility issues, primarily believing them to be female in origin. We now know that infertility can be due to either partner or a combination of both, and that pregnancy is a very complex series of events. If you search on the internet, there are thousands of suggestions of treatments which may help to improve fertility. From a medical perspective, what treatment options are there? Well, this really depends very much on the cause, if indeed one can be identified. The other thing to consider is timing of treatment, because remember I said normally we consider infertility in terms of not being able to get pregnant after about 12 months. This time frame is reduced in women older than 35 due to the fact that we know that their fertility does start to drop off quite considerably. Going through a stepwise approach to treating infertility, There are a couple of lifestyle interventions that can be considered to start off with. As we've mentioned in many podcasts, smoking cessation is really important as a lifestyle intervention, again here in the case of infertility. Smoking does decrease fertility along with all its other negative health impacts, so smoking cessation is very important. Another lifestyle intervention to consider is ensuring a healthy weight is maintained. Weight loss in the case of obesity, or even gaining weight if a woman is underweight, can improve chances of getting pregnant. Sometimes drugs or even hormones can be used to help stimulate ovulation. These include clomiphene citrate, or perhaps more commonly now, FSH, or follicle-stimulating hormone. Then we get into what is termed assistive reproductive technology. These are a few different types of procedures that are used to help fertilization occur and include intrauterine insemination, also known as artificial insemination, in vitro fertilization or IVF, and one of the other technologies that we just mentioned called ICSI or intracytoplasmic sperm injection. We just heard about IVF as being one of the treatment options. It's a fairly recent invention. In fact, from what I understand, it was only first successful in 1978. 
How does it actually work and what's the process for it? IVF was first successful back in 1978 by Steptoe and Edwards, and Edwards subsequently won the Nobel Prize for IVF, which was a great recognition of the impact it's had on infertility and making infertility much more of a societal issue that is openly discussed and is well recognized in society these days. What it involves is the use of hormones to stimulate the ovaries to produce more eggs. And the production of more eggs means that the clinician can then go in laparoscopically and collect a larger number of eggs from the ovaries prior to them being ovulated. And then those eggs can then be mixed with sperm provided by the dad to hopefully generate zygotes the next day that can then be developed in culture up to the blastocyst stage and then transferred into the mum's uterus a few days later. So I think at the core of the definition of in vitro fertilization is that term in vitro. So the fertilization step is happening outside of the in vivo or normal environment within the uterine tube. So essentially mature eggs are stimulated within the woman, retrieved, and then fertilized essentially in a petri dish and then re-implanted back into the uterus, which would have normally happened following fertilization in the uterine tube. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And uh, the success rates of IVF have really become quite successful now in that in a good clinic, about 40% of the cycles will lead to a pregnancy. That's a significant improvement over the early days when it was more like 15% of cycles would lead to a pregnancy. I remember reading a while back that one of the most critical points of making IVF work was the recognition that sperm actually need some maturation which occurs in the female reproductive tract, and reproducing that in the petri dish environment was pretty critical for this working. So it's not just about taking sperm from the man and combining them with eggs from the female, that you actually have to mature the sperm in a way that represents the female reproductive tract. I think one of the one of the real keys to getting IVF to be very successful was how you treat and handle the gamete in vitro. And this process that you mentioned is called capacitation. That is capacity to fertilize an egg. And that is only something that is acquired over time after being in the female reproductive tract or simply in culture medium outside of the body. So this capacitation of sperm is a really critical part of them getting prepared for fertilization. And similarly, eggs as well are particularly fragile cells and need to be handled very skillfully at the right temperatures and also carefully maintained so that their chromosomes are really organized in a way that allows them to form a healthy embryo. We often hear about people freezing their sperms or eggs for later in life. What does this actually mean and how do they do it? That's another really important step in the whole IVF procedure is because we generate multiple eggs in the IVF process, they can be fertilized and generate multiple embryos. But if you transfer more than one or two embryos, the rate of twins and the rate of triplets really increases dramatically. So most commonly now in IVF, only one or two embryos are ever transferred into the uterus. So this often means you've got extra embryos that can be stored in the freezer for a later cycle. The freezing process itself is really fascinating that it's possible to actually freeze an embryo and thaw it out and it will develop perfectly normally into a healthy baby. And we know this happens. There are thousands and thousands of babies that have been born from frozen embryos in the past. 
In the early days of IVF, it was typically that embryos at the early cleavage stages, at the two or four cell stage, were frozen. That's now changed dramatically because many embryos are cultured through to the blastocyst stage because these have the best success rates in, in IVF. So now blastocyst, freezing blastocysts is a very common step as well. Egg freezing is another really important step, particularly for patients who might be having cancer treatment or other processes that could damage the ovaries as a part of the treatment. So taking eggs out of the ovary and being able to freeze them and store them in the freezer for possibly being able to use them for restoring fertility at a later stage when the, when the patient or when the woman is ready to have children is a really important option now that's available to women who are having treatments that will damage the ovaries. So I have heard from people that quite often they struggle to get pregnant. They use processes like IVF. But then once they've had their first child through IVF, they can then naturally conceive subsequently. Do we know what's going on with that mechanism? It's an interesting phenomenon, and it is something that is recognized and does and can happen. And there may be some capacity of priming the reproductive system of the couples that really helps them to become pregnant again. It's actually rare that we are completely infertile. Subfertility is a, probably a better way of explaining our fertility and our relative level of infertility. Fertility is actually a probability thing. And we heard this earlier where the average chance of becoming pregnant on any one cycle is about 20%. And that varies a lot with individuals and individual couples. So it may be that while a couple has tried to have a baby for a year, they've just been unlucky. And then they've had an IVF treatment cycle and become pregnant. And then the fertility may be the same as what it was before IVF, but they've just gotten lucky with a healthy viable egg and a healthy viable sperm that can produce a baby. And I think something that we haven't touched upon is the stress associated with infertility and fertility issues. So sometimes just having gone through a pregnancy, your stress level decreases, also making you potentially more able to have children. Jumping back to the original question at hand with regards to household items and their effect on fertility, what are your thoughts on that? So there's good evidence in experimental systems that BPA can lead to abnormalities in egg production in the ability to produce sperm. So there's no doubt that environmental factors can influence the ability to produce healthy viable gametes. And without those healthy viable gametes, you're never going to generate a healthy embryo, and that leads to infertility and subfertility. As we've heard in other podcasts, from everything related to how we eat it or ingest it, it really comes down to how our body metabolizes these products in the environment. So we're not exactly sure how our tests within the lab translate to how they're processed in the human system. They probably do have an impact, but to what extent is still being debated. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com, for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomist and use the hashtag anatq.